Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. Times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Tuesday, April the 16th, 2019, and this is episode 2423 of the Survival Podcast. We're continuing today, part four, in a four-part series where we've been doing the Just Jack shows about permaculture. So it's called The Design Science of Permaculture, part four. This one's going to be a little different, though. It'll definitely fit this series, but we're going to back off of the entire design science concept, even though everything we're going to talk about involves that design science. We're going to be more concrete today. Uh, last episode, we talked about techniques, tactics, and strategy. So we started to kind of get into this actual kind of hands-on, beyond just how you think about design, and here's things you can implement into a design. Today, we're going to go to another level. Today, we're going to talk um, uh, about the concept of being a hunter-gatherer. And designing your system like a modern hunter-gatherer. Now, let me explain something. I don't mean you're going to need a thousand acres to do this so that you can actually live like our hunter-gatherer ancestors did. I'm talking about being able to live like a hunter-gatherer, not the same as like, right? Uh, like as a hunter-gatherer in many ways on a property that could be a quarter of an acre or a half an acre or an acre or two or even five. See, the thing is, guys, I have polled this audience multiple times over the years and said, hey, where do you live? What's it like? How big's your yard? What are your goals, etc.? And so I know you guys well. And I know I've got some people out there that own 1,000-acre ranches. I, it's great that you do that. That's awesome. I know I've got people out there that are full-time farmers that are, are farming you know, to the level of a you know, Darby Simpson or a Greg Judy or something like that, uh, running cattle or running uh, poultry or hogs. I know I've got that. And I know I've got people with their mind is on. Someday I'm going to own you know, 50 acres in the woods or something like that. But I know that the majority of my audience... This is who you are. You work a job, and you you know, or you have, if if you if you have a business, it's more job like in schedule. Uh, you don't have maybe the ability like I do to like I'm bored right now and I don't want to talk in the microphone for a while, so I'm going to take a walk outside the back door. Uh, so you have a schedule you have to keep, and most of you own lots between about one tenth to one quarter of an acre up to two to five acres. You, it's a small to mid sized plot. Most of you live either in a suburb or near suburbs or near some kind of town, city, etc. Um, and you still want what permaculture offers. Some of you have a long-term vision to get onto a bigger property. Many of you feel like, I actually kind of like where I am. I just want to make myself like it more. So we're going to take the approach of how we take that backyard of yours or maybe the front yard, too, if you live where the Department of Making You Sad or the HOA won't get in your face, and turn your little property into this little oasis with permaculture. To do that, we're going to talk about agricultural thinking versus horticultural thinking today. And we're going to talk about my good friend and, unfortunately, my late friend, Toby Hemingway, one of the true pioneers, in my view, in the modern permaculture movement. 
And so because of that, I'm actually going to, as we go into today's show, move my segment for the T-SPAS item of the day to the front of the show today. Because my item of the day today is Toby Hemingway's book, um, Gaia's Garden, which I think is probably the greatest first book for someone that wants to get into permaculture and permaculture thinking and work on the scale that we're going to talk about today, the backyard. And I, I have to use his book today as item of the day because I have to give him credit for what you're about to hear, right, the whole show. So just real quick, you guys know that you can support my show by buying you know, your products that you shop for online through tspaz.com. Just go to tspaz, T-S-P-A-Z.com, and then as long as you start there, whatever you buy, you help support us, and I do have my item of the day. Today's item of the day is Toby's book. Again, it's called Gaia's Garden. I think it is the perfect first book. Or even if you've studied permaculture and you're trying to get your head around, how do I do this for me? I think this is the most approachable work there is. Now, eventually, Toby became very well known because of that seminal work. He did uh, a ton of talks and things like that as well. Uh, courses, teaching, taught uh, his own standalone PDCs, taught as an instructor at other people's permaculture design courses or PDCs. Uh, lots of interviews. He's been on my show at least twice, maybe it was three times. Uh, uh, he just did so much for the permaculture world. And he was an open-minded person who always wanted to learn more. And what ended up happening was, as he started to think about how do, how do we take permaculture beyond something that one person does by themselves and make it something that's more inclusive, how do we take it to the point where we actually start to change society? And Toby mostly came from what I would call a center or moderate left position politically in his past, from what he's told me. Okay? So initially, when you w start walking that path, you, you realize that government is not only one of the biggest restrictions, but one of the biggest forces in life. So you start thinking about, well, how do we harness government? And as Toby did that research, he determined that government was a problem, not a solution. And while the problem can be the solution, sometimes the problem is the problem. And he started to do more and more research on the human condition and human history and where all this permaculture stuff came from. Remember, when we did the first episode of this series, we started out with um, the ethics of permaculture. Care of the earth, care of people, and return of surplus. And then the prime directive, the only ethical decision is to take responsibility for ourselves and for that of our children. Right? And that's everything in permaculture comes off those things. And Bill Mollison, when he built this design science, knew that it had to be anchored in something that was an ultimate truth. Like that everybody who is reasonable can agree on these things. So Mollison went back and, and looked at all of the indigenous hunter-gatherer type societies he could find, the historical ones that had been recorded, and the ones that were still around, and said, what is, what is the commonality, whether it's a, a, a tribe on the plains of what is today the United States, the jungle of, of, of the Amazon Basin, the aboriginal of Australia, or a, a native person in the the uh, the savannas of Africa, these societies like this that uh, existed so far apart from each other in such different worlds, what were their commonalities? And those ethics steered from those commonalities. Well, we we, we got to take care of each other. 
Can't go around hurting people. We're going to have problems. Um, we we got to take care of the earth because like this is where we get everything from. Like if we if we don't take care of this stuff, then then we're going to die. And like all the extra has to go back to make sure there's always something. That that was a common thread amongst all these hunter gatherer societies. So of course Toby in his quest to understand this ventured into that world, and he came to much the chagrin of many people in the permaculture movement a conclusion that was completely logical to me, but was absolutely crazy to some, and that is that the natural state of humanity is anarchy. Not the anarchy you see on TV, not people in black masks, not people that throw bottles through the air or hurl bombs at archdukes or whatever, that the condition of individuals within communities that they choose to be part of self-organizing managing themselves, creating their own rules, and basically seeing to their own needs and peacefully going about their lives was the most natural state of humanity. And one of the ways to approach this was that if you if you take out what we've been taught and you look at simply the human condition, that humans lived longer that way than they have any other way in our history. That we have walked the earth for, you know, anthropologists agree, well over 100,000 years. Modern civilization is at best 10,000 years old. Right there at the, at the minimum versus the maximum, you're at 90,000 years this way versus 10. But even over that 10,000 years where civilizations were rising, there were the majority of humans still on earth were still living outside of what we would call civilization. So he, he realized this, and as this led into what becomes our subject today, and that's why I have to give so much credit to Toby for this. And just so you all know that maybe you're new to the show, or maybe you're somebody that likes permaculture, so you found this series, Toby and I were great friends, um, very close friends. I have this thing that I fear when I actually let somebody into my life to be that close, because so many of them part so early. Um, it's, it's, it's happened quite a bit uh, Hal Dodd, Ron, Ron Hood, I've both done tribute shows to, and Toby as well, when he passed here on the air, just in the last 10 years. Those are three people that I met after I started the show that I became incredibly close to that I lost. And I am hoping to honor him today. And if at any point I sound choked up or something, it's because this man was a dear friend to me. We didn't spend a lot of time together in the real world, I guess you'd put it. We spent a lot of time communicating by email and text message and one of the great things about Toby, and one of the things I tried to learn from him, was that it is important to form natural allies, regardless of your political beliefs. So when he went and came out in Permaculture Voices 2 as an anarchist, and there were people like, oh my God, not Toby. His whole message was, you don't have to do this. This is just how I think. And he didn't care if somebody that he was talking to was an anarcho-libertarian like me before he made the leap himself in that general direction, or if they were a complete left... He didn't care. If you wanted to do permaculture, then he saw you as a natural ally to that thing. And that's how I'm hoping to come at this today. Um, but one of the biggest things that I got from him in this relationship and in these discussions was focusing on the difference between being agricultural and horticultural. And I never had really thought about it. Like, 
We, we would define many times permaculture it has a hundred definitions, depending on how you're, how you're asking the question, what is it? And a lot of times people would say, well, permaculture means permanent agriculture. And that just really isn't a good word for it. And first of all, what, it, what permaculture actually is the combination. It was never permanent agriculture. Mollison never said that. Uh, David Holgram, the co-founder, never said that. It was permanent culture. Developing a way that society could create permanence, resiliency, regeneration into what we did to provide ourselves with housing and food and materials and commerce. All-encompassing. But if it was any sort of growing of food that you would want to make permanent with permaculture, it would be permanent horticulture. The humans are naturally horticultural people. This is what we do. And I never knew this until I met Toby, but the root of, the ag of, of agriculture is not growing crops. Agriculture in the root of the word literally means the cultivation of fields. To cultivate squares of dirt is basically what it means. And horticulture is the culture of plants to grow, to propagate, to breed, to improve, to select plants versus to cultivate fields. And this led him, and this is what led him down the path toward natural anarchy, as he called it. Hill people versus the city people. And there's a book called The Art of Not Being Governed, where he got a lot of this from. It's totally worth reading. And um, in that book, and in Toby's work, he, after he, he got to this point in his life, he talked often about the difference between hill people versus city people. And you could, didn't have to necessarily be city people. It could be hill people versus flatlanders. It could be hill people versus townspeople. And the mindset of the hill people was far more toward this horticultural mindset that we want to talk about today than this agricultural mindset. So if you think about this, there's this long history, and you can look throughout the world. There, this dynamic existed in Southeast Asia. This dynamic existed even in Africa, even before our time of getting there, when there was more of a agricultural-type settlement on the plains and more of a horticultural-type mindset, hunter-gatherer mindset, up in the mountains. And that's just always been the case. Even here in modern United States, if you look at it, the people that live in the Appalachian Mountains uh, have a, a, a distrust for people that live you know, down in the big city. And they live an entirely different life. And they see things entirely differently. And it makes perfect sense. And here's some of the differences. They're going to even touch on a little bit on religion here. Um, you can believe whatever you want religiously. We're just talking about the facts on the ground of how people think. In general, in indigenous societies, the people that lived in an agricultural settlement, their gods were sky gods. And just again, we'll take modern religion out of this. Just like Egypt, right? In Egypt, sun, the Ra, the sun god, was the, the ultimate god. It lived away from you. We lived here, the gods lived there. The hill people, the jungle people, their gods were with them. Some of the cultures in South America, for instance, the jaguar god, is right there with you. They had that difference in mindset. They also had a difference in mindset about what something was. The person that lived in the hills, the person that was a hunter-gatherer, saw the deer as what? The deer was a resource. And it was a spirit brother that would give its life so that you could eat. To the, to the person cultivating the field of grain, what is the deer? 
The deer is the enemy. The deer is the enemy. The deer comes and eats your grain. The bear, to the person that lived in the mountains or the jungle, was dangerous, but it was its own kind of spirit animal, spirit guide, spirit brother, that had to be understood. To the person down in the valley, the bear was simply the thing that would come and kill you. And all of these different variances were the thing that kind of separated and kind of created a bifurcation of humanity and many societies that if we actually examine the word anarchy, which is not without rules, but without rulers, most of these hunter-gatherer, horticultural societies were anarchist societies. Not because they lived without technology. That's, that's another thing that people have just gotten completely crazy. And unless you're crapping in a bucket, you're not an anarchist or whatever. Right? That's just nonsense. It was the concept that they, they had relatively small numbers in their settlements. If you have a settlement with like 250 or less people, over time the average person can pretty much know everybody that's in that settlement by name. Know who they are, know what's up with them, etc. When you live in a city of a couple thousand, there's no way that's going to happen. So these, these, these settlements, these hunter-gatherers had this concept that they knew everybody that was in their group. Therefore, if they engaged in warfare, if they engaged in warfare, well, the person that died on your side was going to be somebody you knew and care about. So you, warfare was incredibly limited. Likewise, if somebody was hungry and not eating, then that was somebody you knew, you cared about. It wasn't some random person 5,000 miles away that some other random person wanted to take your stuff and give it to them, like, there was no real need for welfare because everybody looked after each other. And that human beings in that type of society will look after each other. And this led Toby to the concept of something called liberation permaculture, which was a, a method of resistance that I believe was built into it all along. Maybe it just didn't have the name. Molliston built it right into the system. And what, Toby talked about a lot of things with this. You can listen to the episode. I have a link in the show notes where you can hear it. Um, but one of the things he pointed out was, let's say, taxation. That when we look at agriculture, one of the reasons that government and the state seized on it is because agriculture produces a crop that's infinitely storable. Maize, wheat, rye, amaranth, no matter where you go in the world, the mainstay of, of agriculture went around something that was very, very long-term storable, even before we had any kind of refrigeration or freezing. It was also incredibly measurable and therefore taxable. And you could say that this field was X fill-in-the-blank, whatever, whatever words, acres or hectares, it doesn't matter, whatever word that state used to describe that, and it could be expected to produce in a bad year, X amount, and in a good year, X amount of this staple. And therefore, things could be divided, controlled, and taxed. And you could create order and control of a society through agriculture. Whereas with hill people, when the guy just walks out his door, or, or hut, or a tent, or whatever, and goes out in the woods and just starts picking shit up and eating it, oh, that mushroom's good for medicine, that mushroom's good for stew. Oh, that squirrel's going in the pot. Those people are very hard to control. I don't remember if it was Custer, but one of the American uh, generals involved in the Indian Wars said of the Native Americans, never had a people live so free as this. That's what he was talking about. 
And so we can adapt this modern concept of liberation permaculture into our lives because we can increase the value of a property by almost incalculable amounts of money to us. But a tax assessor just sees a bunch of weeds and trees. And that was just one concept of liberation permaculture. It led him to develop a second book called um, The Permaculture City where he talked about taking this concept and spreading it and developing communities based on it that ignored the state, that accepted that it was there, that, that dealt with it as a design restriction, that used it when expedient, but largely saw it to itself. And that all stemmed off of horticulture, which is kind of where I want to be with you guys today, talking about how to change your backyard into this modern hunter-gatherer mindset. It would be great if we could all get together and go get 80,000 acres in a really great climate with some glades and stuff like that for, for larger scale production and wildlife and hunting and we could all live like primitive with internet and air conditioning. That would be great. It's, it's really not feasible. So we have to start with where we are, grow where we're planted, grow in our own backyard and develop these systems in our own backyard. And what I have found is some of the impediments to doing that are that people learn a thing in permaculture or in just natural gardening, organics, whatever. A word, for instance. They latch onto that word and they take that word to mean something that it was never meant to mean and therefore it becomes a restriction on what they do and they don't free themselves up. So one of the things that we need to understand about these horticultural peoples throughout the world, they all had crops. They all grew stuff. And they, they typically grew a lot of one or two th or three things. So if they were in a place, let's say in, 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 in South America where potatoes did well, they grew a certain or a couple different types of potatoes that did really well at their elevation, their, their rainfall level, etc. They figured that out and they grew a bunch of it and it would be like right outside their house, like zone one. You know, and maybe they would find three or four other staple crops that were caloric crops, or generally grew year-round, or had a very long season or whatever, and they grew a lot of that. And the word I'm talking about here, then, is monoculture, and the other word is polyculture. And one of the things we kind of drill into people as we bring them and drag them into the permaculture world is we don't do monocultures, we do polycultures. But if you're going to build your backyard on permaculture principles and you're going to try to mimic hunter-gatherer systems, we need to understand the difference isn't what we've been led to believe it is. So when we talk about polyculture, we can talk about radical polycultures. Radical polyculture is something like Sepp Holcher does. He builds a hugel mound, you know, that's 100 feet long, and there's, there's 200 different plants growing in it right next to each other. <clears throat> and there's a place for that, and we're going to get to it. But that's what you would call a radical polyculture. Conversely, my grandfather's garden, when I first started learning about permaculture, I started thinking, well, my grandfather did a lot of really great stuff, but he was gardening in monoculture. We had a row, and that row would be a row of broccoli, and the next row would be a row of cauliflower, and then the next row would be a row of tomatoes, and the next row would be a row of peppers, and the next row would be a row of cucumber, and then the next row would be a, a triple-wide row of corn, and then the next row would be a row of potatoes, like that. The next row would be a row of onions. So sometimes there would be some interplanting. Onions, he, onions and garlic he often interplanted because they had the space. Carrots he often interplanted because they had the space. But in general, we had dedicated rows. 
And that's still a polyculture. That's not a monoculture. A monoculture is when you go look at a cornfield and you can see practically to the horizon in all directions and there's nothing but corn. And everything else has been eradicated. You have a, 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 you know, a quarter, a tenth, a, a, a hundred foot square, whatever, garden surrounded by the type of stuff that we're going to grow today and it's focused on four or five or six things that do really well to produce an abundance for you and it's not heavily interplanted. It's still a polyculture. Because it's still interacting with the herbs and the wild plants and the trees and the grasses and everything else that's on your property. So I want to start from today when it comes to actual concrete doing stuff. Don't think that you have to have every single bed that you plant be a radical polyculture. You can have dedicated areas. And when something goes there, put that there. The next thing is we have to think about the mindset of the hunter-gatherer. The hunter-gatherer, his primary means of getting from one place to another was his feet. He walked everywhere. Now, a lot of them did use um, specifically uh, boats, you know, dugout canoes and such like that, where it was applicable because you could cover a lot of distance, carry a lot of weight. So it makes sense. But even that, I mean, you were walking to wherever that boat was, and when you got where you were going and pulled it up on shore, you were walking somewhere else. The hunter-gatherer, right, walked. He used his feet. He walked with his head up and his eyes out. He listened to the surroundings so that the bear spirit wouldn't eat him. And so that the squirrel spirit could go in the, in the pot. So if you're going to design your backyard or your front yard or your property, whatever you want to call it, like a modern hunter-gatherer, you need to design pathways through the property. And if you have a really small property, that pathway may primarily just be a, a, a circle around it because it's like, like the longest thing you can do. But what have we talked about? We've talked about edge. And if we design pathways through our property that meander and then crisscross each other and interconnect, those pathways all now create edges. All of those edges are opportunities to plant. So we're going to design pathways through our property. That's important to zoning in the first place. Those paths can be multifunctional. They move people or wheelbarrows or vehicles, right? We call those roads from one place to another. We want to put those pathways as much as frequently as we can, when practical anyway, on contour. Now they actually, when we get a rain event or we irrigate, they slow and soak water into the ground. And they're going to create all this edge. That brings us to our next principle if we're going to be designing backyards this way. We're going to, when we create edges, we create lots of small spaces, little spots, little pockets here and there. Oh, look, there's a corner where two fences come together. That's a natural trellis. Look, there's a bush, but the bush is pruned up, and there's a space underneath it. That's an understory. Oh, look, we put in this bird bath. The birds come, and they poop all around it. That's a natural source of fertility. We can either grow something there, or we can figure out, well, where does the fertility flow from? That simple little thing. And figure out how to harvest that fertility. Maybe not as a compost, but maybe just simply as we have a way that we direct water and then slow and spread water, and then that creates a tiny little swale-like berm on a path. And then stuff just naturally does better there because these birds are constantly coming into a feeder and to a bath and pooping. And it's a natural connection. But it's all in these little small spaces. The smaller the property, the more important it is to look at every square foot, every square inch, and say, well, what opportunity does that have for us? 
Because unlike the, the ancient hunter-gatherer, or the few that are still around, we don't have this massive wilderness to just wander. And we don't just expand our open area, the little buffer we have between us and the forest, as we see fit. We are restricted by the neighbor's fence. We are restricted by where the county says we own and where we don't own. We have to make use of these small spaces. Then, the other thing we have to do, I talked about not necessarily feeling the need for radical polyculture. However, once we get outside of, like, if we have this, like, think of your garden is like a zone three on a, on a bigger design. It's your main cropping area. Even though you're going to handle it like a zone one because it's small and you're doing it intensively, it is producing your tomatoes, your potatoes, your cucumbers, your, you know, your, your corn, whatever it is that you, you for me, peppers are a mainstay crop. You're, you're, you're producing that in that area. But then you have all these small spaces. Well, what do you plant? Well, on some levels, you know, like, this area is going to be really great for a climbing vine, and kiwi will do well in my area, so I'll put a kiwi there. Or I don't like kiwis, but I like grapes, so I'll put a grape there. Or whatever it is. I'm going to put a maypop there and have passion fruit. Whatever it is. You know, I like what I want to try there anyway. Still, there's always more space than you have stuff. So with seed, with plants, and especially on a small space because you can afford to do it, plant everything everywhere. Just plant the shit out of everything everywhere. Again, you can still have your little garden where you're kind of isolating your beds. But everywhere else, just throw seed. Seed's cheap. Not huge amounts of seeds. Little bits here, there, and everywhere. And then let the plants tell you where they want to grow. You'll find, like, hey, you know what? I really wanted in this area to grow some peppers. Peppers don't like this area. But this, you know, this wild plant or, you know, garlic chives or whatever it is grows here. Look, it's just growing by itself. I forgot I even threw that seed there. Great. Then that's where you grow that thing. And then you can begin to say, well, what else will probably grow if that will grow there? And you can begin to increase that polyculture and control. Or you can just simply say, hey, this little spot works, so I'm going to create some kind of a natural border so it doesn't get stepped on. You know, so we don't forget that that's what that is. Hey, I wanted to put all my herbs over here. Turns out they like this wall of my house better, and there's like all kinds of herbs just popping up here. So wherever your plants tell you they want to be, go with it. Because that's what our hunter-gatherer ancestors did. They would find a plant, and they would realize this plant is useful. And they would bring it back to the places they'd kind of cleared out a little bit, and they would plant a whole bunch of it. And if it decided it liked it over here versus over there, it, okay, we're going to grow it over here. We'll grow something else over there. So let the plants tell you. Next is compost everything, and including some stuff in place. There's times where I go out to my garden, and, uh, you know, let's say with celery. I, I do a lot of celery regrowth in, in my aquaponics beds. And sometimes I want the stalk, and sometimes I just want the leaves. I use the leaves like a salad. So a lot of times I go out there and cut a couple stalks off. And I'll cut the leaves off. I just take the stalks and cut them up and throw them right into a, a wicking bed that's right next to it. Sometimes you just lift up the, the mulch and throw it under there. It doesn't always have to go to a compost pile. Think about hunter-gatherers. They probably f quickly figured out that organic matter was life in their gardens. So anything that came out of there that they weren't going to eat went back in there. Anything they fed to their animals and produced it an animal waste went back in the garden. It was too valuable. It's too valuable to get rid of it 
Besides, they had no place for it to go. That's how they figured it out in the first place. They probably piled all their crap up in one area, thought it was a bad thing. Hey, we don't use this stuff anymore. Can't be worth much good. Come back and all of a sudden all kind of crap's growing out of it. Wait a minute. So compost everything. Have a plan for that. Not because you're trying to save polar bears. You're not going to save polar bears because you compost. But you sure as hell can build fertility in your backyard. Um, kind of reinforcing what I said about let the plants tell you where you they want to be. Again, the garden beds are fine, but grow everywhere. Figure out what you can grow everywhere. Especially when you have limited space. So let's say that you can do all this fancy shit in uh, your, 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 your backyard without blue-haired old ladies complaining about you through the HOA or without the department of making you sad coming. But if you start doing mainframe gardening and, and, and have this beautiful you know, herbs coming up everywhere and stuff, in your mind, uh, the neighbors will get all upset. You live in lollipop tree land where people have lollipop tree, which is that one tree right out in the middle of the yard, and you have your mailbox at the end of the driveway, and you got a little landscaped area right in front of the house just outside the door and maybe across the windows on the other side. And if you do anything outside of that pattern, it starts to attract attention that you don't want. Well, what can we grow that fits in with the suburbanites? An example would be all of the different beautiful ornamental kinds of chard, Swiss chard. It comes in red, yellows, pinks, whites. It's a fantastic vegetable. You know where people have their little bushes? Plant chard in there. No one's going to care. No one's going to get upset about that. Figure out anything you can that's edible And plant it. And your herbs, again, is something you can do a lot with herbs in the front yard. People don't get upset because they see a basil bush. As long as you think about the pattern and make it the pattern. But wherever there's a space where something can grow, plant something. Because eventually, you're, you will determine, number one, all of the cherry spots on your product. Places they're just going to produce for you. You're also going to determine the spots that there's just nothing's growing there. Well, that needs your attention. The ground is compacted. There's some sort of toxin. The soil needs to be remediated. It needs a lot of mulch. It needs a lot of compost, whatever. You'll figure it out. Um, and eventually, you'll, you'll start to develop your entire system based on the reality of what your site wants to do for you. You'll uncover it like a sculptor. Sculptors say that I did not create a statue. I, I removed the excess material and reviewed, revealed the statue that was there. So grow, grow everywhere, just not just in garden beds. Now, you know, take your consideration into what you want to do. If you want an open space for the kids to throw a ball or something, I'm not saying you have to give that up. You can leave that there. I'm talking about all the places that otherwise are doing nothing for you. Grow something in them. Um, I think one of the biggest things you can do to start to even understand the mindset, and it's one of the beautiful things about doing permaculture or just even organic gardening, Eat what you grow while you walk your property. And I don't care if it's a little suburban property like I used to have. My place in Arlington, I did this all the time. But like I was out this morning, and I was taking care of some plants in my aviary. And while I'm out there, I'm just looking at all this beautiful red amaranth that I'm growing basically as a green. And it's just beautiful, and it's just vibrant. So I pull a couple of those, just snap them off at the base grab some dill, grab a couple of nasturtium leaves, go out to the aquaponics greenhouse, it's like right next to the aviary, and pull a bunch of uh, celery leaf off of there, rolled that all up, and just made like a little, just a little snack. It wasn't a high caloric yield, it wasn't going to change my life, but it made my morning better. 
well, this is how hunter-gatherers are. Like, I'm hungry. I'm going to eat this. Well, my buddy David was here this weekend with his, with his boy, and they were digging the spot for the pond for the pond workshop. You know, as he's driving by the locust trees on the excavator and he can reach higher, he's pulling locust blossoms off and eating them. This is, this is such an advantage that we have because of the way we grow. There's so many people, they grow food in their garden to be healthy, but they can't eat anything without washing it because of the chemicals that they use. I can walk through my property, and unless it's at the height where a dog can pee on it, I will pull it off of the vine and eat it, pull it off of the tree and eat it. I have places, stands of, of lamb's quarters. I'll just go grab lamb's quarters and make like an on-the-go salad. When the, oh, chives, man. Chives are a great thing to grow. That's another thing I put in my little, my little breakfast roll today, right? But when the trees start producing fruit, I'm walking through. I'm grabbing a mulberry here. I'm grabbing an apricot there. This is how, this is how humans live. This was freedom. And we, we, we can't bring it all back, certainly not even in a generation. But we can create this for ourselves. This is what permaculture is really all about, creating these little oases. Because I'll tell you one thing they do, breaking out of my notes here for a second. We want more people to do this. And you can go tell people they're wrong. And, and, and generally, that doesn't work very well. Generally, telling people they're wrong results in them shutting you down and telling you to STUF, right? I'm sorry, STFU, right? You can go get try to get a law passed, and, and most laws are massively ineffectual. They, they, they turn honest people into criminals for no good reason, and most people ignore them. There's a book so, called something like Three Felonies a Day, talking about how there's so many laws now that the average person is breaking the law all the time without knowing it. So law is really not that effective at getting what you want accomplished. Law is very good at restricting behavior. It's not very good at, at, at motivating behavior. So what is the primary way that you motivate a behavior? You get people to want to do it. You show them what it looks like, and you make it attractive so they want it too. No one passes a law that makes a Ferrari a desirable car to own. I know not all of you want a Ferrari, but you get my point. In spite of the cost, rich people buy Ferraris. No one has to have a law that says, hey, you want to buy a Ferrari. Why? Because it's an amazing car. Because it can do 200 miles an hour plus. Because it's like driving a race car on the road that you can own. So people look at it and go, I want a Ferrari. Nobody passed the law that said you have to have a swimming pool. Number one way people end up with a swimming pool, they go to a friend's house that has a swimming pool, and they come home and mom and dad have a discussion and go, hey, that was pretty cool, wasn't it? What if we had a pool here? I wonder how much it would cost. Next thing you know, they're putting a pool in. So this is how you spread permaculture. You build it. Then you bring people there. You share it with them. And when they want to take the tiniest step, you help them take it. And if you build a system where you literally can walk through your property while you eat, you will create that. I can't tell you how many people that I've had on my property, especially that are not from this community. If you're from this community, you kind of know what to expect. But friends, family, stuff like that, and you walk through just a simple garden, and you walk by and you pull this beautiful little orange mini pepper off of a branch. You hand them and say, eat it. The concept that they can put that thing in their mouth without going to the sink first is in complete 
conflict with everything they believe about the world. So you pick another one off and you start eating it like an apple. They're like, oh shit, I guess this is okay. They take that first bite and you see their eyes like, holy, like they can't believe the flavor. It hasn't been put in a refrigerator. It's not cold. It hasn't been on a truck. It grew next to a basil plant, and there's just, just this little kiss of basil flavor. And a bug is flying by, and a butterfly is landing, and they're eating this war, you know, pepper that was warmed in the sun. And it's juicy, and it's flavorful, and they're like, holy crap, this is how hunter-gatherers live. It's one of the reasons they had to create society the way they did. Because if, you're, if you live this way, you don't have to put in eight hours a day. You don't have to work 300 days a year. People can get by working two or three hours a day living this way. Now, our modern society has some limitations that if you want to participate in it, you've you got to probably do more. But we can still have this piece of it. And this is the way to share it. Because if you can take a walk with somebody and feed them as you walk around your property... I promise you, they're not all going to go do it. But they're all going to be way more open to it, way more interested in it, way more wanting to know more, way more wanting to do something, anything, one thing, than if you just simply said, hey, you know, you eat crap. All the food you eat from the store is garbage. You're feeding your kid garbage. It might be true, but it's not effective. This is effective. Next, if you can, and almost everybody can in some way, Integrate animals into your systems. And the reason I think it's important is we are trying to mimic nature. There is no natural system that is not dependent on some level upon animals. And in some instances, animals that aren't here anymore. When, when, when Europeans first came to settle this continent, there was a bird known as the passenger pigeon. They existed in the hundreds of millions And they migrated across the country. They're also pretty stupid and they flew pretty low, which is what made them easily hunted into extinction. But can you imagine what the nitrogen yield of fertilization was of these pigeons flying back and forth shitting everywhere? Today, doves, white-winged morning doves, fill that role. Nowhere near to the level or volume, but they're doing that. Ducks do that. Geese do that. They spread fertility. They spread seeds. When we take a small homestead, little backyard, and we take and we put a couple rabbit hutches in the back. Now we have a meat yield. Now we have a reproduction cycle. But more importantly, we have a manure cycle. Remember, we compost everything. And we can now actually begin to take some of the surplus yield on the property of things we can't eat. We can't eat grass, but a rabbit can. We can't really eat clover. You can eat a little bit of it, but it's not something you can live on. But a rabbit can. So now we have this thing that everybody sees as a problem, this lawn full of clover and, and, and grass. you got to cut it and weed it and mow it. And then it's gone. We've got to bag it up and take it away. Oh, we can get a bag mower and mow one little strip of it, and we have food for our rabbits for a couple days. And then the rabbits poop and we put it back to the ground and we improve the fertility. That's just one example of how animals affect the system. 
we can do the same type of thing with quail kept in cages if we can't you know have an aviary like I have right you can have you know small tractors you can have quail where you can't get away with having chickens if you can have chickens there is again I don't care these people that want everything to be nirvana that let perfect be the enemy of the good they have no concept of reality and most of them talk a good game but they don't do shit there is no problem with having a little chicken coop and a run that we keep with deep litter And chickens, those chickens are happy. I don't care what anybody says. Those chickens are happy. And we feed them all of our waste, and they're constantly building compost for us, and they're producing eggs for us. And, and we, we can, you know, use and harness their behaviors in whatever way we see fit. They provide entertainment. And these little horticultural societies throughout the world had a history of domesticating animals. Not just harvesting the ones that live in the trees, but the ones that could live in the backyard, bringing them into the backyard. Many groups and subcultures within Southeast Asia keep pigs, little small pigs. We call them potbelly pigs. We make them pets. They let them run around like dogs. But every once in a while, somebody graduates to, to bitty bacon. This is, this is the way humans were designed to live. This is the way we naturally lived when people left us alone. So we want to integrate animals. Now let's say you can't. Let's just say ethically you're like, look, I don't have the time to provide the care and husbandry this animal deserves. You know what? I respect the shit out of somebody that says that. I respect that way more than somebody that feels obligated to do it and then doesn't take good care of the animal. Because even if that, if I'm going to eat that animal, if I'm raising baby quail that six weeks from now I'm going to pop their head off, like popping a zit, yank their breast out, yank, and throw their, throw their, their, their breast and leg quarters on the grill ten seconds after I pull it out, while it's still warm, even if I'm going to do that, that animal is going to be cared for every single day and it'd be as happy and comfortable as it can be every single one of those days. So I, I totally understand that. It doesn't mean we can't integrate animals. Remember my earlier conversation about the bird feeder? What we need to do then is say, okay, yeah, I live in this suburban lot, but squirrels crawl and birds fly and they're going to be here anyway. So how do I design things that keep that squirrel happy to munch down on black oil sunflower and produce a compostable for me rather than pull the peaches off my peach tree? And now we're integrating that wild critter into our system. The hunter-gatherers would form their pathways based on game trails. Deer, I guess, formed a government. They made the first roads, Right? And so we can think about that, and we can't do it the same way. Well, we can mimic that and find ways to integrate animals into our systems. Bird feeders in particular are fantastic for this. And then think about this. Most birds are not seed eaters. The majority of birds are insectivores. They prefer, And many that eat seed are, are omnivorous, and they eat seeds and insects, and they, they like insects. So if we're growing lots of stuff that insects eat, wouldn't birds like, let's say, the little Jenny Wren, which is one of the few birds I know of that will eat Japanese beetles, wouldn't we want them to be in our property? So we need to create perching places for them. We need to create cover for them. We need to create, you know, if it makes sense, we create housing. One of, like my grandfather built little bird houses, and he found out, you know, from talking to, old, to Tim that we're old-timers. That's, you know, that's an old-timer there. That's somebody that, you know, if my grandfather had called them an old-timer, there's a pretty good chance they were around when the Civil War was going on. And 
he built these little birdhouses for Jenny Wrens, and he had them like on the uh, the clothesline. Yeah, we used a clothesline. You know, the side of the house over here, and there we had the little Jenny Wrens everywhere. And he loved his Jenny Wrens because when those Japanese beetles would show up, and the number one thing they hit was his grapevines, his Concord grapevines. He loved those things too. You know, I remember him standing in our driveway, which was just a stone driveway, and looking and just grinning because there were little Japanese beetle wings glistening in the sun. Like it looked like somebody put glitter on the driveway because little Jenny Wrens had spent all day grabbing one beetle at a time, taking there and beating the hell out of them to get those hard wings off so they could eat the insides. So we can integrate things not just like with bird feeders, but bird habitat to bring the birds that we're looking for into our property and to repel the animals that actually are a problem. We can think about that as well. But if you can have some sort of livestock, chickens, quail, rabbits, etc., I think it makes sense to do it. Uh, rabbits, I think rabbits are worth having for the waste alone. Like one, If you don't want to breed rabbits, like a single pet rabbit is probably worth having just for the manure that it produces. Um, I, I really think one of the ways to think about this in general is I try to design beautiful chaos into my property. Everything is actually in a place that it's supposed to be. It's there for a reason. I put it there for a reason. Either because I wanted it there or nature told me, hey, this thing does well there. There's a pattern. There's a pathway. This property, you look at it, doesn't look like there's a lot of pathways. But if you just start walking it, you'll find... I, this is interesting. I will have sometimes people come over and I'll go, like, I'm busy doing something. Like Usually like I'll fin finishing up the show and somebody comes to visit. Hey, you can walk the property. And I'll be sitting in here in my office. I can look out and I will watch them walk the same path that I walk every day. So it's designed to pull you through that way. And when I go out, we'll get to this in a second because the next thing, inevitably they'll be standing looking at one of my water features and just sitting there listening to the water. Because one way or another, wherever you are, even though all the water is kind of in the same area, it's going to lead you there. You're going to end up there. And when you get there, it's going to stop. So it's, 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 it's intensively designed. But it looks, it looks radically disoriented. It looks like it's just completely disorganized. There's a you know, straight line here and there, but overall this just looks crazy. Because that's nature. You're not going to go to a field and see nothing but clover, unless man planted it. You're not going to look at a woodland edge and have it be a straight line unless somebody cut a field and made that straight line. The edge is going to be undulating. It's chaotic, but it's also in perfect order. And that's what I call beautiful chaos. You, 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 when you walk through a forest, there's no rhyme or reason to why this tree's here and that tree's there, other than nature being the sculptor. This moss is here, this lichen's here, this piece of rock is there. But you never walk through a forest and say, gee, somebody needs to tidy this up. Somebody needs to fix this. That, that tree should get cut down and then that bush should go over there and these rocks need to be piled up over here. You walk through a wilderness and everything seems perfect, even though it's an utter chaos. That's the way to think of your design. And then design it with you in mind and that chaos, chaos around you. Next, like I said, water features. Integrate some level of a water feature. I think everybody should have at least a little garden pond. 
You know, something even if it's something you build out of a stock tank and uh, get you know the the rock that you make uh, those the prefabricated things that you make uh, retaining walls out of, or if you don't have to worry about dogs crapping in it or ducks getting into it, you know, dig a hole, throw a pond liner in it, and create you know hide the edge with some slate and some wood and some stuff like that, so it looks really natural. Um, water, water's life. You can go a hell of a lot longer without food than you can without water. So I think water harvesting is really a good idea, too. Water tanks and cisterns and things like that. Absolutely. Rain gardens. I mean, think of water beyond surface water. Uh, Bill Wilson, I'll try to find a video he has, where they put in a rain garden. So all the, instead of doing catchment, because it didn't really make sense where he lived, it would have caused you know problems, at least in the front yard. So they took all the downspouts and they built swale-like features. They really weren't swales. Basically, paths in the landscape. And they fill them up with tons of mulch. And then when it rains, it just doesn't run off the property, just soaks in. And then they built, you know, ways to plant gardens and things all around. It's beautiful. That's a water feature too. But I'm, I'm specifically talking about moving, noise-making water. A little garden koi pond. Because you'll find yourself sitting there and a place that you thought you'd never see a dragonfly. As the dragonflies come in the season, you'll see dragonflies in colors you can't even imagine. Anywhere in America. A place where you, 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 you don't have the time to take care of bees, you wish you had bees, there's not enough bees, you put in a, a good, nice, moving water supply that has an area that's easy to access for bees, and all of a sudden you're sitting there and you, you, you don't know anybody in the area keeping bees, You never really see many bees, and all of a sudden you see all summer long fleets of bees coming in to collect water. Wasps. I mean, even our swimming pool. We'll be swimming in the pool, these big red wasps, which I actually have no problem with them unless they put a nest in the wrong place. Then they're really dangerous. You know, the big red wasps, paper wasps, etc. You see them, they come flying in, and they land on the water of the pool. Kind of like a water strider. They spread their feet out, and they float. They drink water, and they leave. They come and go all day. They never cause a problem. But they kill the crap out of pest insects. They're a predator. We have little black and white wasps. I don't even know what they are that come in. So water. And if you think about horticultural hunter-gatherer societies, they always related to water sources. They would build their villages and their little towns and whatever all along uh, natural lakes, natural streams, estuaries, coastal areas, because water is life. So when you add water to your property, you literally add life to your property. So integrate water features. Next, mulch, 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 and mulch again. Mulch, 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 mulch. If you produce something that can become mulch, turn it into mulch. If you see something that can be mulch, take it home and make it mulch. Mulch, mulch, mulch. Just keep throwing mulch down. I almost don't care what it is. Wood chips are kind of the overall best thing. Because remember, the forest floor is a lake. And we are not trying to mimic the cornfield. We are trying to mimic the forest and the settlement at the edge of the forest. Or the settlement surrounded by forest is even better. But we can't get all our neighbors to do this too. So we need to, to make as much spongy absorption as we can right where we are. And there is no better way to do that than with wood mulch. And that's another one. People say, you can do too much. Blah, blah, blah. Shut up. Put the wood mulch down. And when everything just grows and it won't stop, 
and you don't have a place to put it anymore because all the ground is covered, then you can stop putting mulch down. And when this one area gets bare and nothing else wants to work, and nothing else, throw compost and mulch on it. Well, this area is kind of a problem. Compost and mulch it. Well, I did that, and I planted it. It didn't grow. Compost and mulch it again. If you do this long enough, you can turn a parking lot into a garden. I've seen it done. I've seen places where like people want to do a community garden, and the only thing they can get to do it, the only space they can get is like an old parking lot. And they take center blocks, and they make a raised bed, and they start throwing crap in the center blocks, throw some soil on it, and they just keep doing it, and eventually they're growing. And the best ones I've seen, eventually they work out that, hey, if this blacktop wasn't reflecting 100-degree heat all day long in the summertime, everything would be better. So then they mulch all the whole damn parking lot. Like I said, I've seen videos of it being done. What six inches of, of wood chips on top of the blacktop in between the rows. And you see gardens growing like, holy God. It almost makes you want to grow on, on a freaking parking lot. If it'll work there, it'll work in your backyard. Mulch, 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 and mulch again. And then my last one out of this, this group here, plant wild things. I'm blessed to have a lot of y'all that have become good friends and have, have been very generous to me with small actions that mean a lot. For instance, one of the things that I've been trying to do here for years is get any form of broadleaf plantain to grow on my property. I, uh, I've managed to find a source of something called tonic plantain. It's a narrow leaf plantain. And I've put so much seed down that it found places it liked it and it's growing and it's reproducing and, but I have not been able to get what everybody else considers a weed, broadleaf plantain to grow. I want broadleaf plantain because it's a pot herb, it's a salad herb, and it's a medicinal herb. I can eat it and it can be medicine. If I can eat something and it can be medicine and it feeds my animals, I want it. So, for instance, my buddy Roy up in West Virginia has this plantain, and like it's like half as long as plantain. So last fall, when the seed heads were on it, he went out and just started stripping plantain seeds for me. He brought me like a half gallon, like a one-gallon bag half full of plantain seed. And all spring, still going now, whenever it rains, or I know it's about to rain, I go out and just spread small amounts of that everywhere. This will probably be the year. There's somewhere where things are good enough now that that plant that grows everywhere else, like a weed, that didn't want to grow here, probably because of alkalinity and limestone, and the little bit that did grow, 150 ducks, find it and eat it, will have it. That's a wild plant. And once it catches, it'll be that plant that everybody calls a problem. It'll start showing up everywhere. It'll reseed itself. It'll naturally select. Fine. I have four different types of wild garlic on my property. There was one when I got here. Every time I'm in a field somewhere in the springtime, I'm looking around. If I see wild garlic, the little heads that form on it are like little seed bulbs. I'll bring it home. I'll scatter it. I have spiderwort. It's a wild herb. Edible flower growing on my property. Lamb's quarter. The lamb's quarter that's on my property started out, I found a stand of lamb's quarter growing during a drought in Arlington, Texas, near a place that I used to fish, a little creek. I thought, wow, that's still important. I mean, even for lambs, like everything else is dead. The ground was a little damper there and whatever. So 
I was like, I, I want to harvest seed from this. So it was a place that I, you know, I frequented. I'd go by at least once a week to, to take a walk in the woods or to go fishing or whatever at this creek. So I started, I would get a bucket full of water or two. And every time I was there, I'd dump it on them to make sure that they made it. Because they had already identified themselves as, even for lamb's quarter, being badass. And uh, by the end of that season, there was, there was two huge ones left. And they were covered in seed. I got a bunch of seed. I planted it in my place in Arlington. I planted it in my place in Arkansas. And when I came here, I brought that seed here and I planted it here. I got places now. I could, I could literally, for a couple months a year, sell lamb's quarter microgreens. Because some of the shady spots where it's a little bit more protected, he's got this massive carpet of lamb's quarter. It's edible. It's a weed. My chickens eat it. My ducks eat it. I eat it. Um, if I get more of it than I can deal with, it's compost. I, I, I don't know what the problem is. So plant wild things. And when something wild is useful on your property, make sure you don't eradicate it. You know, there's so many wild herbs. There's so many wild medicinals, etc. Plant those wild things. What I wanted to finish today with is six permaculture principles. We've been you know, kind of finishing up these episodes with a half dozen principles, permaculture principles. Principles are something that guide our design. Instead of, you know, integrate animals into your systems, that's more of a, an edict, right, or a standard. A principle is something we can pull back and say, this is a deep, meaningful thing that has all types of permutations that come out of it, something we can base what we're doing upon. These six principles are principles you may have heard before, but I would also call them all Spirko principles, in that I have adapted them to my philosophy of permaculture design specifically for what we've been talking about today. And number one is, nature is abundance. In natural systems, you, you end up with natural abundance. You just do. No one has to make it happen. If you doubt me, on a good mast year, Take a walk in some native forest that's primarily white oak, and you'll feel like you need an umbrella as you know acorns the size of shooter marbles fall out of the tree constantly and hit you on the head. As you walk through the forest to the point where you feel like you're going to slip and fall because beneath the leaf litter, it's nothing but acorns. And animals, you, you, know, you don't even see animals moving to eat anymore because it's wherever they go, there's food. Nature's abundance. In a, in a climate that's resilient enough, clear-cut a piece of property. And then step back and don't do anything. A mixed forest will come back. You planted a pine plantation 18 years ago. It's shitty management, so there was no plan to fix the land after it was harvested. Somebody came in and cut the land. Guy puts the land up for sale. This actually happens all the time in the South. And then no one buys it. And he doesn't think it's worth it to replant it because it turns out that the, that that 30 acres of pine wasn't really worth as much as he thought it would be. And he's taking his money for the wood, and he's just hoping somebody will buy the land, the next sucker, so to say. And in 15 years, you have a mixed hardwood forest. And in some places, it's so thick, you can't walk two feet through it without a machete. If nature isn't abundance, where the hell did it come from? Who planted it? And when you understand that and you create a natural system, you create abundance. So you, you stop having to worry. Remember we talked about the city folk, the, the, the farmer, the deer is the enemy because he comes and eats his, his wheat. 
Well, the farmer really cares about that, not because he's not growing enough wheat to eat. He's got to sell that wheat to pay for his farm. He's got to pay taxes to Pharaoh out of that. He's got to pay off the loan he took to plant the field. Do you think I care if a squirrel eats a few of my peaches? When, you know, lots of them end up on the ground and all of a sudden new peach trees are growing from nothing now? Do you think I'm worried about that? No, because nature's abundance. If we're not trying to create a farm, we're not trying to create a revenue stream. Even if we have revenue streams within here, for the whole thing is not like everything has to be a revenue stream. All of a sudden there's so much abundance, we stop worrying about the pest. We stop worrying about a little bit of, of, of you know, something harvesting as well. And we realize we'll never not have enough. There's so much lamb's quarter, if we can't eat it all and it does become a problem, we can make compost out of it for fertility to grow something else. Nature is abundance. Next, and this is one that I think a lot of people struggle with, and I think it's where a lot of our problems in society come from. Man is part of nature, not separate as we have been taught. We have been taught to think of we need to have protected wilderness. And because of the way society runs, people that say it are not wrong. But they, the motivation for why it's true is wrong. It's not that, oh, we have a sick system, a system that is a mining versus a cultivation system. We take and we take and we take, you know, like some kind of virus is the way we behave as a society. Because And understand why. We don't do that because this is where the problem is. We don't do that because it's the natural state of human beings. We do that because people that want to control other people realize that creating scarcity and creating division and at the same time creating order, structure, and control is the best way to do that. If you take all of that away and people live in a natural abundance, they are seldom, if ever, damaging as a whole to, nat to nature. Because we are natural We are native to earth. I am as native to where I sit today in Texas as any other animal that lives in North America is. I'm as native as the elk. I'm as native as the deer. I'm as native as the squirrel. I'm as native as the catfish that swims in the stream. I belong here as much as any other creature does. And if you want to make your whole indigenous people's argument, just don't bother me with that. We live in the world that we live in today. I'm indigenous to Earth. I'm an Earthling, right, for you sci-fi types. I'm an Earthling. I'm part of Earth. I'm not some piece of, of computer-generated technology. I crap, and if I crap in the woods, it's fertility for a tree, just like a deer or a bear. Now, if so much of us live together in one place and we concentrate that waste, we have to be responsible enough to use the intellectual capacity we have beyond any other creature to deal with that. But we're natural parts of the environment. We are supposed to be there. Just like the termites build mounds on the plains of Africa that advance a forest by loosening up the soil and infiltrating water, if we live the way I'm talking about, nature expands with us within it instead of us pushing nature back then having to control nature then have to wall it off and say well, this is a protected wilderness area no people should go there and the truth is we have more wilderness in the United States per total acreage as a percentage 
than any other country in the world. We, we are mostly wilderness. But we, we have not become, we've, we cease being good stewards of it. So we can at least be good stewards of our backyard and understand that you are naturally part of your backyard. And that's how you should approach things. You should approach things as though you were a squirrel with the intellectual capacity of a human. To know, like, if I do too much of this, I'm going to damage things. Animals don't understand that. So there's natural systems that control their populations. If they eat too much, they die. If they become too much of an annoyance, something else kills them. Right? If they don't pay attention in a place where there's a potential danger, something eats them. We've used our intellectual capacity to rise above that level of natural control. It doesn't make us not a natural part of the system. It makes it incumbent upon us to use that same intellectual capacity to realize that now, now we have the potential to do true damage. But it's not our nature. It's not what we're about. And as soon as we understand that, all of this gets easier to do. Next, if you build it, they will come. Yes, I said they're my principles. I also said you've heard them before. Yes, I know that's a movie about a baseball field. But if you build it in your backyard, they will come. If you build insect habitat, insects will come. If you build bird habitat, birds will come. If you build frog habitat in a place where you don't think there's any frogs, as long as there's frogs somewhere, anywhere around you at all, they will come. I put in three little stock tank ponds, and in two years, we had bullfrogs. Big old green bullfrogs. They're in there right now. I walked out there this morning, like four. I'm like, jumped in. There is not any surface water, any permanent surface water around me for over three miles, and I have bullfrogs, and I did not mechanically bring them here. We had a year where we had like 28 days of rain in May, and pretty much everything was flooded. I think they showed up then. But if I didn't have a place, they wouldn't have stayed. If you build it, they will come. And that doesn't just apply to frogs and lizards and snakes and insects and bees. And I know bees are insects, but you get my point. It applies to other people. Remember when I talked about how we can spread this by demonstrating it? If you build beauty and edible landscape into your property, people will show up. One way or another, they'll hear about it, they'll want to be part of it, they'll want to see it, they'll want to touch it, they'll want to experience it, and then they'll go do it for themselves. So one of the guiding principles, if you build it, they will come. So what do you want to come? What do you want to show up? What do you want not to show up? Because I want the person that wants to learn about this to show up. I do not want the department of making me sad to show up. Here, I don't really have to worry about it. But when I lived in Arlington, and I had neighbors on all sides of me, I had to balance building the natural system with not advertising it to the people I didn't want to come. I didn't want code enforcement to come. I didn't want the blue hairs to come. So if you build it, they will come, but they will come based on what you build. If you build a baseball field, indeed, baseball players will come. If you build bird habitat, you will soon hear chirping. Next, manage first by the square foot and then by the square yard. I really mean it when I say, like, when you're trying to design, especially a small property, walk outside of your door, and as soon as you touch soil, grass, whatever, look down, 
what do I do with this piece? And you might think, well, it's nothing. Well, if you stepped onto it, it's probably the beginning of a path. Because that's why you stepped on it. Because it's a place you'd naturally step. Okay, then look a foot to the left and a foot to the right. What do I do with that? And then a foot in front of you. And then a foot to your right quadrant and left quadrant. Well, now you got three foot by three foot by three foot. You have a square yard. What do you do with that? Now, start connecting those square yards. And sometimes to get started, you might have to like go, okay, I can't figure that out, but I know, I know that this is where my chicken coop is going to be. Then go there and start at that square foot and that square yard. And pretty soon, all of it will just fit for you. It will all make sense. You'll realize that like, as much as I put into this, Just like the sculptor says, the design was here. I just uncovered it. There's a thousand ways to design a property. But there's probably only one or two that you will come up with based on what you want, how much work you want to do, how much money you have, your predispositions, the things you like, the things you don't. It's, 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 it's obvious once you become aware of all these things. So start out with that square foot. And then move to the square yard. Next, remember nature is all around you. We live in nature. We almost can't get away from it. Now, if you live in like the middle of some of the biggest cities, New York City, etc., then it can seem like, ugh, you don't know what you're talking about, Jack. Yeah. But dirt will accumulate in the back of somebody's pickup truck and a tree will start growing there. Even in the middle of a concrete jungle. And most of us don't live that much in the shit, right? A suburban neighborhood is full of bugs and critters and things. So we need to be designing with the concept that we already have nature around us. And that if we design naturally, nature will begin to expand. And nature will be attracted back to if you build it, they will come. And then lastly, I know that a lot of you have a dream of something bigger, something better. I understand. I shared it. I made it happen for myself. It's not ideal, but it's damn good. I feel like unless something radical happens, if some radical opportunity or something that happens, I will probably live here till the day that I die, where I am now. Easy to put down roots when you feel that way. Grow where you are. People say grow where you are planted. A lot of times people don't quite feel planted. Grow where you are. And then leave something behind when you leave. Now we can temper this. There are certain radical approaches to design and development of things that may hurt resale value. And if you know that you're going to be selling a house in three years, don't do those things. Do things, you know, one of the things you can do is you do a lot of things with containers and stuff like that in a situation because... Even if you don't want to drag, because a lot of times containers, it's not really worth taking them with you. I've been there, especially planting. You might empty them out and take them with you, because then you can stack them inside each other, and they're lighter, and you don't have to worry about getting plants beat up and all. You know, But I tried the whole, I'm going to grow a couple patio peaches and take them up here and take them there, and get the winds, you end up taking up space and taking extra trips for it, especially on a long drive. Not really worth it, but at least if somebody doesn't, like, I don't like that, at least you can just get rid of it. 
So you have to do think about handing the property off. But if you if you do this right, even in a short-term situation, say three to five years, you can drastically increase the value of a property to the average person that will look at it. So wherever you are, grow there and leave something behind when you leave. It doesn't all have to be done for the purpose of making a profit. If, if you're going to resell, just you don't want to damage the ability to sell the property. It's okay to, to, to really do something amazing and then leave it for somebody else. One of the things I did at my first house in Arlington, this is long before you guys ever met me, is I planted a pecan tree. And not too long ago, I got an opportunity to drive by that house. And, you know, they, there's the, 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 the proverb of, you know, a society grows great when old men plant trees under whose shade they shall never sit. That means when you're, you're so old that you only have a few years left, and you're still planting trees for the next generation, you're going to have a great society. You know, I was pretty young when I planted that tree. It's going back huh, 16, 17 years. That tree's 16, 17 years old now. Barely get my arms around it if I had the opportunity to. Because it's not my property anymore. That pecan tree... Is huge. It's stately. It's beautiful. And it now is under the care of somebody else. It gives me a lot of happiness, though, to know that that tree is there because I planted it. The people that are living in that house, I don't know who they are, but I know they're not the people we sold the house to. They have no idea who planted that tree. But it's there. And it matters. So leave something behind. My final thoughts today is permaculture doesn't always have to be something that we're doing with a whiteboard or a uh, chalkboard or getting down on the graph paper and designing every little speck of it. A lot of it can just be done on the fly with basic common sense, basic principles, adherence to some really solid ethics that have guided humanity since humanity was able to start forming these groups that we were talking about today. And taking care of each other. And it really isn't that hard. And the techniques that we use in permaculture, some of them are really new and really kind of almost cutting edge. But most of them are ancient. The concept that if we take organic matter and put it on the ground, it will break down and make the soil better is as ancient as humans growing anything intentionally. The concept of observation, looking at something and saying, hey, this thing grew here this year, it'll probably come back here next year is as old as humanity. And we can bring all of that right to our backyard. And all of that is indeed permaculture. With that, we've wrapped up another episode. I hope uh, hope you guys enjoyed it today. We already talked about the item of the day. I just want to real quick remind you, though, um, if, you, if you do shop at T-Spaz, not only do you help us, but today, if you're buying Toby Hemingway's book, and there's a second book he wrote again called per- Permaculture City. Um, it's in a link in the, in the write-up today as well, in the P.S., um, Toby has passed. His wife, his widow, uh, receives the royalties from his books. So he was a good man. He did a lot for society. And uh, when, when you pick up his his books today, you're still helping her out. I, I think that's one of the biggest things that he left behind her are those two amazing books. So just wanted to talk about that real quick. Lastly, let's go ahead and talk about our song of the day, which has really nothing to do 
uh, with Permaculture at all. It's a song that, uh, you know, one of those songs that I think pretty much everybody uh, on the planet has heard at one time or another. But we're in an obscure music week, obscure music trivia week, actually. And so yesterday I played you the song that was the um, longest title of a song ever to hit number one. Today we're going to play the shortest number one song of all time. This is by Maurice Williams in the Zodiacs. The song is called Stay. It was released in 1959. And while you may be more familiar with this number from Dirty Dancing, Stay was steadily climbing the U.S. charts at the close of the 50s. The doo-wop hit was initially penned by lovelorn 15-year-old Williams after his date abandoned him, ostensibly due to a 10 p.m. curfew. The track landed on the number one slot November 21st, 1960, only to be brutally dislodged by Elvis Presley's Are You Lonesome Tonight a week later. While erroneously cataloged at 1 minute and 50 seconds, the actual runtime of this song, 1 minute, 37 seconds, and that secures the place is the number uh, the shortest number one hit of all time. Also been covered by a lot of people. Buddy Holly covered this. Uh, God, I can't think of who else. Did. Uh, obviously, uh, Jackson Brown. We just did Jackson Brown week last week. Uh, the Loadout combined with a remake of this song, Stay, was a, was a, a song that uh, Jackson Brown released. A lot of other people did it. And, and as, uh, as John Adams, who wrote this up for us, says, like it's probably most known in, in modern times, anyway, if the 80s or modern times, for its inclusion in Dirty Dancing, uh, the, the original one with Jennifer Grey and Patrick Swayze. It's a really cool song, though, and it's one of those songs that, while short and direct, we all understand it. We all understand it. There's times when someone or something's going to leave us, and we just wish we had one more moment, but we have run out of time for today. So with that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or if they don't. Just